Welcome to another episode of the United We Pray Companion. The United We Pray podcast is a podcast about racial divisions in churches. The United We Pray Companion podcast is commentary on the United We Pray podcast. Today it's me and Jorge. Again, Jorge, what is your favorite color? Let's see. Uh, my favorite color? Red. I'd say red. My favorite two-color combination for a long time was black and white. Um... Mm. Then black and yellow. But my favorite color alone, red. That's cool. Uh, I thought I'd throw that one, that new one in for you. I think I asked how you're doing, like pretty much. But anyway, good job, good curveball. Today we're going to talk about an episode that is features someone named Duke. Kwan. Nate, Nate, yeah. sorry to interrupt Please. you. Can I make a confession here? Please, a little confession. Yes. So. I didn't lie to you, but it's not black and white. It's black and yellow. Favorite my, favorite, my favorite two-color combination was never black and white. It was black and yellow. I kind of like the uniforms for Juventus, a team from Turin, Italy. Uh-huh. But maybe it's, maybe it's from listening to these podcasts I said black and white when I really meant to say black and yellow. Dude. But yeah, black and yellow. And my favorite color, soul color, yes, it is red. But I'm a big fan of blue as well. It is, it is a great song from like 2008. Well, well this is this is wh- this is way before the song though. Before, way before song? before it was a trend. Hey, that's cool. I mean, on this podcast, we discuss like the word sociology is mentioned in this episode. We're going to talk about psychology's talked a lot about this. It is also mentioned. So that might have been a, an example of priming. Um or, or or something but caught me off guard. You know, I'm the and, one that spoke it. Black and white are even colors. White is absence of color, I believe. Or is black absence of color? Black is the absence of color. White is all the colors perfectly together, yeah. I think. And there's different rules for light and color as well, which we can investigate some other time. But really the thing I like about this podcast is that we're full of rich content and we don't mess around. And we've been messing around for two minutes now. But I appreciate you being <laughs> confessing and being honest. I just I had such a guilty conscience with no, that man. black and white instead of black and yellow. All right, cool. This episode we're reviewing today is from season two, episode seven, titled "What About the Other Other?" More than a black white conversation with Duke Kwan. From May twenty third, twenty eighteen, season two. Let's have you summarize the episode in general. In a few sentences. In this episode, their guest, Mr. Kwan, Mr. Duke Kwan, he talks about, I think, mostly things that bother him about how Asians are treated, uh, whether it's from what he calls a myth, the model minority myth, which we've probably heard about in other areas, not just in this podcast. And then just some discrimination that he has seen. Uh, He even goes into discrimination that he's convinced exists in the corporate world when it comes to leadership and whether Asians are seen as capable leaders, but also more personal stuff. Like uh, he really made it a point to explain how bothered he was by uh, constantly being asked by different people, where are you from? You know, where are you from? And then where he would explain, you know, I'm from Dayton, Ohio, I was born there, or I grew up in California, I'm from there. But uh, what they really want to know, what what's his like ancestry, you know, where his parents or grandparents are from. So he did mention that as well. And this is a conversation back and forth between him and the two hosts and cover quite a bit in those uh, 30 or 35 minutes. But it's mostly just his perspective on discrimination, how it applies to people outside of the 
black and white populations. And yeah, that's about it. I think you covered the main points of their discussion. I might re-summarize it and pretty much say the same thing. So yeah, I'd say this episode uh, introduces Asians as a group who experience racism in addition to blacks who, who are experience racism according to the, the narrative that's usually told here. And yeah, it covers the racism against Asians in the corporate world, the racism that occurs in the American church because the American church is built from American history and those are some of the areas covered all with the the main topic of otherness and even being the other other like this is a group that's oppressed here's another group that's oppressed that we haven't talked about yet yeah but we can get into some of the specifics um now that we've tried to capture what what the episode was about a group another group that's oppressed that's sometimes not thought about and then just other ways that people are oppressed even the types of oppression and discrimination that he talks about maybe weren't talked about much in previous episodes, at least the ones that, that I've dealt with. And are you talking about like discrimination in the workplace or just how because, people feel bad or what? Because they did go into that workplace. They didn't, I don't think in previous episodes, talk about like the establishment of different churches or what Mr. Kwan no, described as like um, church planting. Correct. And also just, I don't think that we've talked about typical discrimination that comes up in daily dialogue. The from question, where are you from? Now, I could just not be remembering. I, I agree with you. That is, These are new areas of specific discrimination, which usually we haven't heard about in our season of, of reviewing you know, a handful of different podcasts. But we'll, uh, we'll start with our notes, notes at least I've taken from the beginning of their podcast. Let me quote Kathy Keller from the, this definition that Isaac read for otherness at around 5 minutes and 44 seconds. He's quoting Kathy Keller, and she says, It is natural to find one's identity against others who are different. Many have argued that this process automatically leads people to strengthen their sense of worth and uniqueness by excluding and subordinating others who are other, who are not like us. Christians can acknowledge that our sinful drive for self-justification often leads us to despise those who think, feel, and behave differently than we do. Personal, racial, and class pride naturally grow out of the human's heart, alienation from God, and therefore our need to prove ourselves when an identity based on our specialness, superiority, and performance, uh, end quote. I don't know exactly how the original quote was with saying class pride naturally grows out of the human heart, alienation from God. That's the way it was read. I can't figure out exactly um, how that is supposed to be read. But anyway, the definition used says that sinful humans find their identity by finding differences in others and then there's a drive to oppress those who are different than you because your pride and your ego want you to be want to prove yourself and show your superiority do you feel that way yeah well after that definition that isaac adams read then he gives his own summary of he says it's making someone else inferior based on a sinful desire for wanting to justify oneself do I think this is a good definition for, for otherness? It could be. I didn't think there was so much wrong with it, but it just really assumes that people want to want to subjugate each other or make others out to be inferior. And I definitely do think that's a part of fallen human nature that people fall into a lot, especially I think uh, groups that maybe amass power or individuals that amass power and don't want to give it up. I, I do think there's some truth to it. I kind of rejected the definition. I would agree with you there's some truth to it, 
But the way Kathy Keller talks about Christians and saying, like, Christians have this drive for self-justification that leads us to despise those who think, feel, and behave differently than we do, that is not Christian behavior at all. There's, there's no love in that idea. And I'm assuming if someone's a true Christian, they are redeemed by God, and they're going through the process of sanctification. They're doing what Jesus says and picking up your cross every day, and you're dying to yourself, as, as Paul exhorts people. And so this is like, let's throw a number on it, that the next example of how uncharitable sometimes the opinions are towards Christians, uh, or even even white Christians in, in former episodes, although I, I, I only use these terms that they use, because uh, if you're a Christian, like you're, you're a Christian, and your ethnic identity is doesn't really belong if you're talking about you and your Christian brothers and sisters in the church, consistent with Galatians. But yeah, I saw this as a very uncharitable definition, which would actually accurately describe maybe the world who have no evidence of, of love or compassion. Just to say that people want to suppress others, like that is something that we don't see in today's you know, sterilized society of, of properness and manners and any type of perceived morality that people may claim. Well, I think I think we see it in other ways. I think people do like the Lord over others. Here we are in 2022 talking about this episode from 2018, and Nate, I see a lot of examples of people trying to lord things over others. It's all, but it's it might not be like it's not enslaving people, boxing them in physically like they did before, putting chains on them. No, but it is like an attitude, like an "I'm better than you" attitude, and they lord that over others. They got this weird feeling of superiority, and they lord it over others, and. Tell you what, folks, here in 2022, I see people giving looks when when others don't wear masks. I see people <laughs> giving looks when they ask questions about uh, these things they call vaccines. So I do see it, but I do appreciate uh, your question just caught me off guard a little bit. It shouldn't have. But with what you said, it made me think a little more. And people jumping to conclusions like this with certain definitions of how people other one another, to, to use it as a verb, I think it could just be from a loss of identity because maybe one way to look at other is I have an identity and I see that they're not like me. Okay. Mm -hmm. Another way to look at other is an identity based on not being like those others, which mm -hmm. uh, Isaac talks about yep. the prayer that Jesus gave the example of a man that was praying that was giving thanks to God that he was not like this other man. Or was it like this other group? There was someone praying who was saying, thank you that I'm I'm not like that poor wretched guy over there. Okay. While the, the, the wretched guy was like, oh, please forgive me, God. I'm a, hmm. I'm a sinner. So, and uh, the Lord liked the guy who was being humble and not comparing himself to others. He was just repenting for all of his sin. That's the one whom God honored and said, hey, I'm yeah, be so, like that guy. So really, we do want to be like that guy. <laughs> we do want to see what our flaws are and see what sins we've committed and repent. So that's the way I see it, is maybe this definition of other was was offered in part because we do have an identity crisis. I think that the proper order of things is I have an identity and I will naturally notice uh, when others are not like that. But our identity should not be based on not being like these others and, all right, how are we different? Okay, we're different this way. We're different that way. Okay, cool. This way too. Like, no, it's almost like that's an objective. Yeah, I think yeah. you should celebrate differences in diversity. And now, now you've got me thinking a lot about identity. Like, I'm, let's say I really love the 
the St. Louis Cardinals, and you really love the Minnesota Twins, and we wear different jerseys. And uh, well, actually, in the, in the the football world, it's like people playing soccer <laughs> in, in Europe. Though it's, it's unfortunate that there are murders and deaths from people who support the wrong team after after the match. So yeah. when it comes to identities, we could we could divide ourselves into hundreds of identities and put different weights on all of them. But I think when we're discussing this, if you're a Christian, it's your, your identities in Christ. There's no Jew nor Greek. No other type of identity really matters. It's just that you were one in Christ. And to have this conversation where you're talking about others, you're leaving your identity of being in Christ in order to assume some other identity, put on some other jersey so you can find differences and suppress others or brawl or, or, or whatever. But I think my one of my biggest arguments against all of this stuff I'll call like just just critical race theory, this woke ideology. My my biggest argument that is always avoided is for the church and the Christian who is separate from American culture and American culture's history of however it influenced the church, if you're truly a part of the bride of Christ, your identity is in Christ. And then anything else, any other identity that's meaningful is by far secondary, your national identity, whatever color you are, your whatever you want to say, your profession, that's secondary. And by making much of these secondary identities comes at the cost of your Christian identity. That's my, my biggest argument. And so many times in this podcast, the reason we have these quarrels and squabbles, the book of James talks about this, that we are judges with evil thoughts, and that's what causes quarrels. And all of these can only exist because we're not being united to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So just now you mentioned uh, a history apart. What I heard you say was a history apart that Christians have a history that's apart from American history. You know, and I agree, like a real Christian, although a real Christian lives in this world, is not supposed to be of this world. So that's another reason that I think it's so unfair. It seems that through many of these episodes of the United We Pray podcast, that they so nonchalantly pin these responsibilities on, on Christians. Like they're guilty of things that happened in the nation. And sometimes they come with some evidence or some things that really need to be examined, but, but a lot of times not. And I think that's just too, too reflexive. It almost seems reflexive to pin, to pin blame on Christians. Yeah, and this is a kind of, I've had this conversation with Isaac a few years ago. But things are like um, Americans are racist, and premise number two is Americans are part of the church. Then the conclusion is therefore the church is racist. Like that was an oversimplification, but the idea is because the society or the community is racist, and then you're picking from there. The church, God, the Christ Church, is going to end up having racists. And Duquan actually has the exact same uh, assumption in, in the 21st minute when he's talking about. The archetypal conversation between black and white being archetypes. Um, he, he says in the 21st minute, the, the struggle we see in this country, and therefore the American church, has been historically at root uh, a black and white struggle. And so I, I just have multiple problems with this idea. Like the church is merely uh, people who are just like the world. That is not what the Bible tells us at all. We're not supposed to. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. And what Paul writes to the Romans: we need to have, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, which also sets up the church apart. 
And just in general, when it comes to living a purposeful life as a human, you have, you could do many different things with your life. You could find your purpose or your identity in so many things. But when it comes to living your life with purpose, just a, the religious sphere and people who are religious have the most to live for because you're dealing with a time span of eternity, usually. So anyway, I'm just saying, let's not take the church lightly. It is the bride of Christ. We are sons of God. And although we're still humans and fallen and not perfect, you can still find racism some places. If we're seriously taking the Bible get at its word, we have to recognize that we're different and not like the world. And these petty little racial discussions of finding how you're oppressed is not a biblical idea, as we've discussed throughout this entire podcast for on our side of things. As adopted sons and daughters of Christ, we can't let them paradigm shift us in a regressive way. We can't let them paradigm shift us away from that great understanding that it is basically the Christian against the world. The Christian of uh, taking care of his soul, of being loyal to God, first and foremost, come what may. Uh, we don't want to be paradigm shifted down into only looking at the world and only looking at all these petty conflicts or even just ideas of conflicts that are just amplified and people think they're such huge conflicts. What you just quoted, though, which the guest Duke Kwan said mm -hmm. about uh, what he calls the arch archetypal racial struggle in America, black versus white, I think it's interesting for, for, for this reason that we don't often talk about the others. Like, there's a lot of different groups in the United States, if you want to talk about ethnic groups. Mm -hmm. And the black population must be between 15 and 20 percent, and I think Maybe, it's less. Maybe closer to 15%. No, it's closer to 10. It was discussed okay. in the abortion episode, okay. you remember? when? Anyway. 10 to 15, maybe, yeah. let's say. Uh -huh. So it's like, yeah, these other groups and their experiences, which could be adverse, don't get as much playtime. And I, I kind of, as soon as I heard this, I thought like, you know, why is this? And it could be because they want to have this conversation, maybe, but it has to go a certain way. I'm going to just take a risk here. I'm going to think about what intentions could be behind this. But I think that this is a very controlled conversation. The other other groups, the other ethnic minorities that aren't black. I think they want to carefully have this conversation because instead of this conversation bringing to light the different growing pains that diverse groups have of living side by side, they don't want that to be the result of these conversations. They want the result of these conversations to be, look at how this other small victim group is oppressed by the same large oppressor group. So I think it's always going to be directed back to whiteness, to the majority group of whites. It's like the united colors of, of grievance. Like, what did the whites do to you? How did the whites <laughs> treat you? How did the whites treat you? Well, this is how they treat me. Where we're like a more honest conversation. There's a lot of ethnic conflict between the ethnic minorities. And uh, it's just kind of wild that this Korean fellow that grew up in Southern California didn't bring that to the conversation. So it just did leave a little bit to be desired uh, when you ask me, because I'm sure they could have done an episode about what went wrong during the the riots in the early 90s. The um, please the help me the out. Rodney, the Rodney King riots. Thank you. The LA. Rodney King riots. Yeah, he was probably a kid at that time in L.A. I don't know. That was awful. But I'm all for having these conversations, but let's actually make them more complete. Yeah, it's a perspective I I wasn't really thinking about. Whereas the, the purpose of saying let's look at the other other is saying, hey, let's look at these other groups that potentially have been oppressed by whiteness. I would add another main purpose for this conversation is not even look at the present day suppression from a supposed 
majority group, but also look at the past. And this episode, they have a lot of comments about historic grievances between sometimes different Asian countries when uh, Trulia is discovering the uh, ethnic tensions between different types of Asians. This, oftentimes, this conversation seems to have the major theme of being a victim and being oppressed historically in the past and how that affects you today and even being oppressed in the present. And instead of having the more positive perspective of, hey, let's look at your life, what uh, what seems to be the problem? is Are your problems based on some group or entities of a different skin color hurting you, hurting your career, making it harder for you to progress in life and progress economically? And this conversation just starts to do these gymnastics of reminding people that, yeah, you're oppressed because of these systems and structures that were in the past built by racists, and they're slowly oppressing you, and you need to understand that, and we need to learn about that. And the conclusion from this podcast is that you really need to understand in this black-white relationship. And I think they really want you just to understand how oppressed black people are. If you, um, if we look at towards the end of the episode, I have a few quotes on Duquan reminding people on how we need to have the conversation. He says, at around 22-23 minutes, he's talking about it's important to start and we do put a lot of work into the black and white struggle, but we can't stay there. And then we have to go on to understanding the struggles between other ethnic groups. And so unfortunately, there's this idea of like, hey, young professional or young child or whatever type of person you are or whatever your circumstances in life, you really need to understand how white people have been bad to black people in America. And you really need to understand that. And then you need to move on to how white people or whoever have oppressed other groups. And that's what's important in order to have racial reconciliation. And you may not have done anything, but you just need to understand this perspective and this worldview. Uh, there's other alternative worldviews, and maybe this one. This one doesn't really have very much biblical support, but that's what is called for in this episode. And to me, I, I felt like I was forced into this conversation, and so I've been on this journey of understanding race in America, and it's been kind of painful, and if I spent all this time doing something else with my life, like, I don't know, learning Python, I'd probably be having a lot of fun doing other things. But anyway, these guys don't talk about the costs of this conversation psychologically on the individual and even politically at the, the local governance level when you have these assumptions baked into things. And then, you know, white people are denied certain types of antibodies when they get coronavirus at the hospital. Like there's, there's huge implications to this narrative when people adopt it as a part of their worldview. And as we've been trying to explain, this it's not biblical to Maybe. have this black-white struggle. Maybe uh, part of the reason that this uh, conversation takes up so much airtime and just kind of goes round and round and so much time is spent on it, maybe part of the reason for that is that it's steered a certain way. And it just kind of always goes back to grievance and fanning the flames of that and looking at that again and reliving it again, like resentment. But I really like what you said about uh, positivity. You expressed uh, a desire for for something positive, like a positive view. And we, I almost feel like we got close here. I'm going to revisit this quote as well from Duke Kwan, where he says, we need to put a lot of work into the black and white struggle, but not stay there. Now, the first part of that, like putting a lot of work, like, what are you talking about? Like hyping it up, reliving it, seeing other ways that this hurt people that are alive today. Like the first part's like, please tell me what you mean by that. But the second part was almost hopeful, almost positive, not stay there. Okay, I like that. But where it should mean one thing, he means it in another way. Like not stay there. I'm like, awesome. Like, yeah, not stay there. All right. Like what can we actually do to make people's lives better? What can we actually do? 
to make people get along better? How can we um, really, I think, vindicate the horrible experience of slaves? I think people have the wrong idea. I don't think you vindicate a horrible experience like that by being stuck there and arousing such feelings of resentment for stuff that you didn't personally experience. I think the correct way to vindicate those real struggles, horrible experiences, is to do what you can to succeed today. I think that's the real way to vindicate such an experience. Remember, but then don't think that it has some kind of power over you, like you lost the game. No, the game's still being played. 2022, you can do so much. You can do so much with your life. Success is not guaranteed. Even, even God will not guarantee us success. He may allow us to live a, a life with a lot of struggle, a life with a lot of hardship, but we can be successful in the sense that with faith, we will know how to confront both the good and the bad. But anyways, where I thought this could have really taken a positive turn was that, you know, we need to not stay there. You know, I'm thinking, great, all right, maybe solutions. But no, he says, not stay there. We need to go to other <laughs> experiences of struggle from other groups. It's like, oh man, like that's what you mean by not stay there? But a reason that I think that even this guest who can bring this perspective of discrimination that a Korean American has experienced, it's almost like he pays tribute, pays homage to the black and white conflict. I think that's because that's the most like vivid example. Even though in Twilia Newbell, she does have imagery evoked when she thinks of a discrimination against Asians. She, th she thinks of the Japanese internments that she thought of that in this conversation. But you're not going to find, I don't think you're going to find pictures of Japanese in the internment camps in chains with wounds, with scars from whips. You're, you're not going to find that. And that's why I think the attention is always brought back to, to the chattel slavery, to the way that black slaves were mistreated, because that's what will evoke emotion today. Mm -hmm. Where, as I kind of said in the beginning, if you really want to talk about the other others, you're inevitably going to discover the ways that different ethnic minorities have conflicts. And then you might come to a conclusion like, yeah, we all experience discrimination. We all experience growing pains. We all discriminate. I don't know, but maybe that's not where they want the conversation to go. Maybe they want to like maximize the emotion, maximize the resentment. That's my fear. I hope that's not the case. No, that is an observation. There's different places to jump off from there. But let's take a moment to talk about the Japanese, if that's okay. The Japanese, well, if we want to compare, when they were in internment camps in America, my, uh, my grandfather had a a Japanese friend who was, was interned during that period of time. Wow. And that's the extent of what I know from that story. But uh, I'm pretty sure they weren't... Well, we don't have stories of them being perfectly abused or dying. Maybe some abuse did occur. But have a, a look on history that was broad and fully contextual. We could do some research and tell some stories from the Bataan Death March if we want to see if there's any group in world history that is innocent from oppressing some other group. Japanese are a group that not many Asians like. You know why they, um, do you recall the Japanese attack on America? Would you mind entertaining us and saying what they did? Well, they were very expansionist and they cared about resources. They cared about their power. They cared about the growth of their empire and they attacked Pearl Harbor. It was an opportunity for them to really debilitate American naval presence in the Pacific. And it really, it really hurt the, the Navy. I, I don't know how to put it into numbers, Nate. I don't know if they wiped out half of the Pacific fleet or a third. I don't know. But it was a very 
cowardly <laughs> attack, really, that really opportunistic helped them to keep expanding for a while to grow their influence. And, you know, on that day, Japanese didn't just attack Pearl Harbor. They also attacked Singapore that day, and they also attacked Hong Kong, and they were also coordinated against the Philippines and Guam And during that day. Like, it wasn't just Japan attacked America. No, they... They punched a bunch of different places that day, and I didn't learn that until I, did not I, know until I visited Singapore uh, a few years ago. And and really, like if we're going to talk about culture and ethnic groups, like Japan is a fascinating culture. Like they they have given us Hello Kitty. They also are the only country I know of that has a suicide forest. They are um, yeah, like economically, they they had a giant rebound after World War II, which uh, Korea, South Korea, has also had a great rebound. Um, which think, Americans helped with. Yeah, they have their national sins, I could say. They also have a lot of great national accomplishments that we could commend, and it's just, just kind of fascinating. But um, but in general, a lot of my Asian friends who uh, maybe not maybe not Asian American friends, but my Asian friends who live in other countries who I know like they they have their doubts on Japan. Like not that I'm anti-Japanese, but I, I've heard there's some issues there. Yeah, like a, a wise Singaporean man told me that like deep down they've got something something in their heart that's just like i don't know like they want to take over again or something that's what he thinks of the japanese i mean they they, yeah and like japan world war ii you know singapore like they they were in charge of multiple countries where they just abused raped oppressed other people for years like they did that in singapore they did that in korea they did that other places there's reasons why people don't like the japanese and other asians don't like the japanese so I thought I might be talking about this during this episode of ours. I wasn't sure. I wasn't going to force it either. But uh, long story short, I do a lot of things last minute. And this includes doing my paperwork when I went to college to, to get into a dorm. And, you know, you could put your preferences, what dorm you wanted to go to, your, your housing application. Yeah. And so I was very late to that party. And I got put into a place called Selic Quadrangle, the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where I went. And I was glad i was glad like man good thing i ended up here it was pretty cool there were a lot of people from a lot of different places and many of them from different asian countries and throughout my whole experience there i was there for two years out of my four years in college i didn't see very much conflict i wasn't out looking for it either and i was definitely not trying to stoke it and provoke <laughs> it but uh we did have some some battles there the intramural soccer teams that were pretty fun but um, there was one thing I remember, actually, that evoked some feelings. There was a boy. He was not Asian. I think he was a, a kid from Nebraska. And he, he had a backpack. I think it was a backpack. He had a, a Japanese imperial flag on there. So not the modern-day Japanese flag, but the one with, like, the rays of the sun coming out. You know, these people talking about othering people. It's good to think you're special, of course. But these folks, they thought at the time that they were special in such a way. They were like children of the sun. S-U-N, son, and at the emperor. I don't know all the details, but this was one such time <laughs> in which actually some, some Asian kids took this kid off to the side and were like, hey, man, that's the Japanese imperial flag. Like, you know what that means? <laughs> like, it was a very supremacist uh, symbol of othering people. So, so, yeah, you made me remember that, Nate. Good job. <laughs> wow. Are you telling me that there's such a thing as... Japanese supremacists that are a danger to other people in the world. We're all a- we're all human, man. We're all human, and we need to be secure in our identity. Know that we're loved. Christians have the privilege to know that God loved, that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. But we can be so inflated with ourselves, with our worth, that we start othering people like that. 
But yeah, in Asia, I'd say Japan is probably the least liked group among other Asians. Uh, maybe now China's a close second. I don't know. It's not something I <laughs> yeah. spend a lot of time thinking about. And then in the Arab world, yes, there's a lot of hatred towards Israel, but also Saudi Arabia. Uh, I was playing soccer with some guys, and, you know, I fell into that that pet peeve that uh, Mr. Kwan doesn't like, you know, asking people, oh, where are you from? <laughs> and uh, I, I asked this guy, I think I just heard his name. I like to think a lot of my ability to tell where people are from. It's from, fun to do. From names. Okay. I love soccer. I watch a lot of soccer games. I have got pretty good at telling where people's ancestors probably come from. For example, I would not have asked Mr. Kwan that that question, where are you from? <laughs> With Kwan, I would have been able to assume, rightfully so in this instance, this fellow has ancestry from the Korean Peninsula. But anyways, this certain soccer player, uh, he must have told me his name, and I'm like, are you from, are you from Saudi Arabia? Because there was a lot of Saudi Arabian kids there. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, I'm not from, from Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I was like, oh, okay. Whew. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. It was Turkey. Turkey. You asked if he was Turkey, Turkey that I asked this guy if he was from Turkey. And <laughs> that's what set him off. And he, was, he was pretty mad. He was pretty mad. No, I'm not from Turkey. Yeah, I mean, who can forget the Ottoman Empire? Oof. But uh, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Or I asked someone, dude, this was when I was at some army training. I'm like, dude, your last name's Cortez. That's pretty cool. And he's like, no, Cortez was a murderer. I don't like it. And so, oh, that's um, sad. I mean, that was... Uh, that makes me sad. I mean, he, he had a name of... Of you know famous conquistador that uh, we could say infamous infamous we could say that based on your perspective but really we could Jorge you and I we could do some research we don't even have to do any research we could go on for a quite a period of time talking about conflict between different ethnic groups yeah. that aren't black versus white in America also positive things. So back to Selig, back to the Selig quadrangle. International dorm. International dorm, yep. Half of it were international students because it was one of the few that was open during the summer and kids could stay over the summer. And half of it were Nebraskans or kids from other states. Great states like South Dakota and places like that. (laughs) But uh, you also saw a lot of positive things. One thing I remember, Nate, probably the most successful program, floor program, that my RA put on was a potluck. or It was like an international food festival, but but a potluck. You cannot believe or maybe you can just how excited people are to share where they're from that's why this that's where this duke quant thing made me kind of sad like that's also an opportunity maybe for one out of every so many people that just feel so offended when you ask them where they're from i'll tell you what at sell quadrangle the kids they were just so excited to tell you about where they're from, their family, their culture, their experience, and in this case, their food. Man, that thing was a hit. That thing was a hit. I don't remember how much uh, my RA, his name's Tim, publicized this thing, but oh man, it was a hit, and we had a great time eating food from all over the world, from all these different culinary traditions. People love to tell you where they're from, and my advice also for Americans, maybe Americans that are 8th, ninth, 10th generation and beyond, <laughs> you can also be proud of your ancestry and your traditions yours is a culture too all the cultures are not just all the other cultures of the world yours is a culture too and that was a real beautiful moment to see these american kids these nebraskan kids with these kids from overseas it it was cool i don't think i contributed on that occasion (laughs) to the i don't think i made anything but i definitely enjoyed it what, what i got to eat that day and it was good fellowship i mean it wasn't christian fellowship it wasn't based on a love of christ but uh, incidentally, a lot of us do love Christ, of course. It, it was it was pretty good. Yeah, I'd call it fellowship, actually. It was cool. Breaking bread with, with many people. 
Yeah, that's really cool. Food is a great, great uniter. You know, we all need it. We all have our different versions. That's excellent. Reminds me of my favorite Korean dishes. You know, some bibimbap, some bulgogi. Yeah, there's, there's so many countries. Everyone's got something to offer. We're going to stay close to the subject, and, and I'm going to bring up a quote. The one Duke answered a question from Trulia, and the 11th minute, Trulia is asking more about divisions between Asians. And I just want to highlight one thing he says. The first thing he says, he says, 1120, he says, like, there are divisions, it depends. He says, you got to go case by case, person by person, and community to community, because there are a lot of similarities and affinity to general lines of affinity by being of general Asian descent. And he also says there's real differences. But I'd like to highlight that he says, when it comes to conflict between people, you really have to go case by case. And I'd like to point out that that's a very individualistic perspective where you're not assigning group identities to people. And this shows how group identity falls short if you look at conflict between two people. Sometimes it can be explained by group identity and people's ancestries, but sometimes it can't. Sometimes there's conflict and it's because of people's behavior. And it'd be anti-intellectual to ascribe racism as a major cause to conflict and it really will kind of limit your thinking if you colorize every situation, which may not have race as a part of the equation. I just thought I'd highlight that part while we're wrapping up the conflict between groups topic. I think I'd like to move to uh, his comments on Asians in the corporate world now, unless you have any other comments. I think it'd be a good time for that. Excellent. Duke in the 17th minute brings about how cultural norms pass over well-qualified Asians in the business world. And then Trulia pipes in later that, they're, that these businesses are potentially cutting out an entire group of people, and that's that's bad for them. And uh, Duke actually in the 19th minute, he says, most corporate definitions of leadership literally exclude Asians from that equation. He goes on to say, if you went surveying corporate executives, they say things like, Asians are good workers and they produce good stuff, but they are, are not good leaders. There's some data behind that as well. I'll end a quote. I'd like to point out that Duke claims that corporate definitions of leadership literally exclude Asians. So if you look up, hey, what's leadership? And according to what he says, it sounds like it'd say people who aren't Asian is, is what, what's included in leadership. Instead, yeah. he gives the anecdotal exalt as if, if you ask some CEO or some C-level person, they'd say, yeah, Asians are good workers, but they're not leaders. So what, what he claims that the definitions of leadership literally exclude Asians, his example does not support that ridiculous statement. Uh, and also, I have some counterexamples that of all the big tech companies in America – they're led by Asians, specifically Indians. And if with the tech companies in general, uh, Indians are probably the most popular groups of employees. India's from uh, East Asia, to be more precise. South Asia, maybe. I, I think I've heard yeah. that called on, on, South Asia. Right, on the uh, the subcontinent. And it's like the, yeah, most recently, Twitter got a new CEO who is Indian to add to the CEOs of Google and Intel and Microsoft. They dominate the tech industry, and that is something that was never, I don't think I heard that, uh, that pretty obvious observation in this podcast. Uh, he does bring up some point that leadership usually involves extroversion, and the there's a book called Quiet that came out know, like 10 years ago, and it was a pretty good book. It was basically saying, hey, it's okay to be an introvert, and it brought up similar claims, but this wasn't saying hey, it's Asians being oppressed, it's introversion. And I think that the book Quiet has a, has a lot better argument that it's introversion usually are, are traits that make people become overlooked 
just because extroverts are naturally a little louder and they communicate more and talk more. If you're one of the people deciding who we're going to take a chance on, an introvert shows you less. An extrovert, they're showing more evidence out there whether this guy could be a leader, this guy couldn't be a leader. Uh, an introvert, you haven't really seen what they can do, at least not communicationally. Maybe their their work speaks for itself. I think that makes complete sense. Yeah, ideally, personality is so much more important than what color you are. And that's that's a lot. That's something you you can measure a little more. Something else when it comes to leadership, it's not like you'll see a chart that says, "Are you an extrovert or an introvert?" And if you check the introvert box, you might as well not apply. I think when it comes to businesses and capitalism, companies want profits and they want the best talent and the most valuable resources to go to the biggest markets. And so, therefore, because of capitalism and people making transactions freely in the marketplace. You're going to see the talent go to the right place because people care about profit and the bottom line. So that's the nice thing about having a free market and not a, not a command economy. So gratefully, if there is racism in the economy, businesses who want profit are going to ignore people's skin colors and go for talent. And that's something that I didn't hear on the episode, but really capitalism has, has the answer for racism and uh, when it comes to comes to the marketplace. Yeah, imagine a, a command economy. What chance do you think minorities would have, ethnic minorities would have in a command economy to try their own ideas to do stuff, whether it's to start a business or otherwise? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. The free market gratefully answers, you know, solves, solves a lot of problems on its own um, with, yeah. with the invisible hand. A, com- a command economy, you would need to convince the whole power structure to let you do what you want to do. In a free economy, you just need to convince X number of investors or yeah. people to collaborate with you. You just need someone to buy your stuff and you need some 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 capital, some maybe some property, maybe some labor. I think that's those are the big parts of the equation. But anyway, thankfully our uh, our institutions and systems, although we don't live in a perfectly free market, it's definitely a mixed economy. Thankfully, free market isn't racist inherently in today's today's world in the past yeah we can definitely see some obstacles and the economy wasn't free and racism can be attributed to that but thankfully today there are obstacles there are things that block people's opportunity and sometimes that's based on race it's usually not an obstacle for an ethnic minority i'm thinking of uh contracting with the federal government and you get incentives if you're a female or an ethnic minority and uh yeah, white white men have a lesser chance of doing business with the government if all the other things are equal. But that's a racist part of our institutions, which uh, which exists today. And if I'm wrong, please let me know. But I'm pretty sure that's how business works and with contracting through the federal government. But uh, another thing that's interesting on personality, like narcissism, is usually a trait seen in leaders and that, that's found in the upper echelons. And that's something that's just a little piece of trivia. That something I read a long time ago. Well, we're talking about leadership and what's required. There's some things that I just want. I just wanted to share that. I think we'll move on to something else discussed on church planning. Unless you have any other comments. No, just um, I love this conversation we're having here, and I couldn't help but think of as I heard you speak. I couldn't help but think of Milton Friedman. And I think it was his kind of definition of capitalism or a free market economy: cooperation through voluntary exchange. And yes, it's not a perfect world. And yes, this is not a perfect system, this mixed economy, this economic system. And boy, would I love to change a lot about it. But you can still find people that are willing to cooperate with you through voluntary exchange. I think that's 
that's great for anyone that wants to do something big. Yeah, I heard that described once by a senatorial candidate. Is that that was one of the main one of the three pillars of how this guy defined conservatism, like free market freedom, uh, a buyer freely making a trade with a seller. And uh, that's, yeah, that's a good thing. Blessing. I'll move on to the topic about church planting. In 16 minutes, Duke talks about him and his training to be a church planter and the question he would get on if he was going to plant a Korean church. And then he heard that question a few times. And then he says, 615, he says, on what basis do we have these assumptions about what kind of ethnic profile community? What if I were to ask the same thing of another person of another ethnicity, and uh, that, that's for end quote, that was, that was verbatim. But he's like, why are you asking me if I'm going to start a Korean church? And I'd like to say, well, Duke, Korean churches are pretty common. And if you're a Korean person, there's a way greater likelihood that you're going to be planting a Korean church than planting some multi-ethnic church. Based on the presence I see of Korean churches all over the place, the area where I live and the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. Uh, one of my sister churches it has a Korean church that meets in their building in Springfield. And Annadale has a bunch of Korean churches. But if you were to be honest, and if we were to look at percentage of different churches that have a country's name attached to it, having a Korean church is pretty common. And I think that's a fair question to get if you're a Korean person looking to start a church. Yeah, or maybe in other words, it's more likely that a Korean American would start a Korean church than an Indian American or a I've never seen an Indian German American. Church. I've never seen like a German Baptist church. It's always Korean. And furthermore, like one of my pastors who's a Korean American who is church planted another church who specifically would tell people he wants to have a multi-ethnic church because he probably received the same question many times. It is hard to understand how Mr. Kwan could have been so surprised by that question. I think these are other like opportunities. If I'm starting something, someone asks me, so are you going to do this with it? And it's not. And they assume wrongly. That's just a great chance for me to say, actually, this is what I'm about. This is what I'm trying to, to build here. Um, yeah, a big feeling from this whole podcast was the idea that, like, where are you from? This idea that you're never, I can pull up the quote, it's that you, you're never really at home. You're always a foreigner. Never really and uh, a lot of this episode was based on feelings. Because you're an other, you feel a certain way like that you, that you don't belong. At 12 minutes, Duke's talking about the sense of being perpetually foreign. At 14 minutes, he says, you start to internalize this message. I must not belong. I must not be from here. I must, I must not be seen as a true neighbor. And he claims that this experience extends into the church as well. So that he's associating the church with being the same as American culture. And I don't could be true. I, I'd like to think it isn't, but um, it's, it's another association that had been, has been repeated. But so much of this, the the, neg the negative outcomes of this racism is merely people feel a certain way, that they feel like they don't belong. And I think uh, someone told me a few years ago when talking to a, a foreign military officer at some military training, he's like, oh yes, Americans, we're really into our feelings a lot and talking about how we feel. <laughs> And I thought, well, unfortunately, he's got a point. I think he might have a big point. It's not like we got to worry. Most most Americans, uh -huh. we don't have to worry about uh, do we have enough food, no. or is the is the sectarian violence gonna get me? Is the tribe from the other from the other side of town gonna come for us? 
or where yeah, are we gonna find that struggle, feelings. man? Let's talk about her feelings. I mean, the I think Daniel Goleman's emotional intelligence came out like twenty years ago. I don't know when, a long time ago. And emotional intelligence is in the academy, is in that starts with the the colleges and the universities, and we're studying resiliency. And, and we're we live in a country of of wealth and excess, and so we don't have to worry about where we're gonna get our food. We can worry about how we feel all the time. And and I, I think that's. That's bad for you individually if you're feeling sad because you, you feel like you don't belong. That's that's a mental health issue. And there's a, a quote from someone who I don't really, I didn't like her husband politically, but Eleanor Roosevelt said, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. And I totally agree with that. I know that for some people, feelings matter a lot, especially women. And so I, I recognize that feelings are Feelings can be important to some people. Like in these contexts, you're associating yourself with some group identity, and you associate negative things with that identity, like your like slavery, for example, by being black, and that's just I think it's just bad for your spirit, bad for your mind, and it's you taking some identity that's not your Christian identity and giving it meaning and prominence, and then it hurts you uh, mentally, and so it holds you back. It can. Yeah. Well, feelings, you know, feelings are are real, but humans. We're a lot more than just a combination of feelings. The Eleanor Roosevelt quote, I think, yeah, over time, yes, it, it requires your consent. Like someone might catch you off guard and say something really hurtful. Yeah, it's going to hurt your feelings. But over time, yeah, you have to keep giving your consent to let this person bully you or, or to be bogged down by this, some feeling of insecurity. I don't know. But yeah, we got to be more than just our feelings. We need to integrate things. We need to make sense of things. Why did we feel this? Okay, that makes sense. But, you know, then grow. And we need to integrate. And maybe that's the the thing. We need to integrate history and things that people experienced, but not... What I keep thinking about is just resentment. Just to feel it the same, the same, the same. No, it was the, the victims at the time that, that hurt the most, not people living today that didn't go through that experience. I mean, there are so many resources for if you're, if you're feeling sad or depressed to uh, build up your resiliency... I think the most important thing is if you're a Christian, your identity is that you're a child of God, and that's in whom you find your worth. You're made in God's image, and he loves you, and nothing can overcome that. No scheme of man, nor power, nor principality can separate you from God's love to take from the New Testament. And if Yeah, that would require a consent <laughs> yeah, that would. to be separated from that. Yeah. That's, there's many resources out there I we could, I, we could spend a few minutes like, this is what I do when I feel sad. Usually I just go to bed and wake up feel better. If you're feeling a certain way, you have the ability to to talk, to inquire, to understand. I, I don't know what the situation is, but it's just been mentioned that if you feel like an other, and maybe and maybe it, you are another. And I think it's so encouraged, too. I think to feel like you've been wronged. Of course, everyone's been wronged. Welcome to Earth. But I think it's so encouraged to to develop that. Like, man, I've been wronged here, 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 and here. And I've been wronged and it was hurtful in this way and also in that way and this way. And it was ex- accentuated by this. Focus. Focus. The devil is our enemy. Let's not get into competition of who's had it worse. I think that's a really bad road to go down. Something I'd like to bring up, and so we don't miss this, is this idea of racial righteousness that Duke brings up. And I think that's kind of a dangerous idea. I I don't know of any biblical support for this idea. I think our, our righteousness really 
comes from Christ, and it's him we're, we're called in righteousness because, not because of anything we've ever done, but because of what he's done for us. And he claims that you can, we get to some form of racial righteousness by having more people groups as we talk about our perspectives on life. Allow me to get a quote. It's at the 27th minute when he's talking about getting more groups into the mix and learning about racial sins. He claims that in the 27th minute, after more people get added to our group, we will see more contours to the dimension of racial righteousness as well. We got more people in the room. We will see new glories of how I, of how we can be reconciled together. We will see new ways how each ethnic group contributes to the reconciliation no, this is, yeah, this of is, the body of Christ. Sorry. Yeah, I agree. This is, to me, also so weird. Many more contours of racial righteousness. Man, this seems like more confusion to me. There's this base assumption that your racial identity has a defined special flavor of oppression attached to it, and you need to go catch them all and learn about all these different types of how people have suffered in relation to their race and, and understand how people have overcome. That somehow relates to righteousness or to glory. I think that's and what he's saying in the 27th minute. I don't know, but it's like we're getting to the point we're going to need like racial accountants. All right. This group has been hurt this much. All right, let's bring this over here. This group's been aggrieved this much. Bring that over there. Okay, this group's got to give that much. All right, they need to have a bigger voice here. They need to... How can you keep track of all this? It's like a almost like it's made to be a never-ending problem. Well, you, they almost want to give some type of certification because, you know, he said in the 23rd minute, like, got to start there with the black and white. Put a lot of work into it, and then you can't stay there. It is this never-ending journey of, of learning about oppression. It appears to be that the answer that is been given in by different guests on this podcast it's the same type of thing i think it's kind of dangerous i've never really heard of an end in sight to it but for me the dangerous part is thinking that you're achieving some type of righteousness not from you re repenting of your sins but you're getting it from learning about how other people have felt based on their experiences and i guess consoling them but like righteousness comes from God, not from learning about racial pain other people have suffered. I, I think that's doctrinally pretty dangerous. And not from groups that you've designated as oppressor. It also doesn't come from groups that you've designated as oppressor of uh, ceding things to you or going along with what you're saying or affirming your your ideas of the original oppression, whatever you're referring to. That's so dangerous for that reason, too. You're, you're letting a sense of worth come from someone else. Like, it depends on someone else. Yeah. Someone that's not God, someone that's a mere mortal. That's a great point. I think we've, we sort of have similar ideas that contrast some other ideas. Good discussion. I think we hit most of the main points that were discussed from them. I don't know if you have any concluding thoughts you'd like to share. I think something we don't usually ask, let's ask it at the end of this episode of ours. Uh -huh. what, what are your hopes, Nate? I want to ask you, what are your hopes for, for people? People in this country where people identify with different ethnicities, what, what are your hopes or what do you hope to see? One part of me says my hope is to really have MLK's vision. This is a pretty safe answer. It's like, let me go with MLK, smart guy. I just want to have great relationships with lots of different people who all have good character. I think that's the most important thing. And I think that character is not monopolized by one certain ethnic group. I think character is something that everyone has the ability to have by God's grace. So like, ideally, for me, I hope to just live a life surrounded by people with, with character, with good relationships. We go out and have good times. We have my, I'm, I'm thankful for my church, a lot of people for, for whom I'm very thankful there. And that's really what I'd hope for. And I'd contrast that with the world that I've kind of lived in 
a little bit and we all we all live in where color is used as a basis for whether you're you get a job or it's used to associate you with certain things that don't belong to you like oh you're this you're 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 korean you must be really smart and successful or whatever like sure we can have some stereotypes let's not judge each other or discriminate especially at the, the government level of, of things but uh yeah i just my, my goal is just to have a colorblind life and have a, have a rich life or go travel and to other countries and experience other fun parts of culture and have neighbors who are from different places and have rich histories that have delicious foods they can share and some other neat cultural things. That's really just all I want. My goal is just to have a place where you just judge people based on the character and not treating people differently because of their ethnic identity and whatever is associated with that identity. That's what I want. Do you know what your purpose is? Uh, you maybe you should repeat your question and then give the answer. So you want me to answer that yeah. same question? Uh-huh. What my hopes are yeah. for people that share a country and identify different ethnic groups? My hope is that we're encouraged to train our guns on each other to have these racial conflicts. And my hope is that we won't be so distracted. My hope is that we will see things for what they are, see that the real danger is our real enemy is the devil. And one of the real dangers is that our guns are trained on each other and not on our common enemy. And I think culture is a big factor. Uh, Culture is, my definition for it is, whatever you so value that you teach it to the next generation, that you hand down. That's what I think culture is. And I think it's such a big factor as we try to do God's will and as we have God in mind and that he's the one we want to be loyal to. I think everyone needs to look at their culture, the culture that they live in, the big culture, the subculture, uh, and decide what do we need to drop to follow God. You talk about a military officer who had the name Cortez that you uh, had an exchange with who was ashamed of his name because it belonged to a Spanish conquistador. Folks, not every culture is the same. And there's stuff from our culture that we need to get rid of to be compatible with Christ. And I think of stuff like that. I think of the Mayans. I think of the Aztecs where there was human sacrifice and human sacrifice on an extraordinary scale. And we need to decide where our loyalty is. What's our culture? What's good culture? What are the good aspects? What do we need to drop? And hope that we make smart decisions because I hate to see this kind of castization of making of castes in this country where we were never supposed to have caste. Nowhere they're supposed to be caste, but that's one thing that has made me proud of my American citizenship is that here, we didn't think that way. That's what I remember. We didn't think of these different castes. And I think we're getting to casteization, if I can make up that word, <laughs> based on race in our country today. And that makes me so sad. Let's drop it. Let's drop it. Let's drop it. Let's follow Christ. Let's try to restore our nations. Those are my hopes. But it's gonna take humility. It's going to take honesty. So are we willing to do that? It's an open-ended question. Yeah, I like that perspective. You definitely gave a, a more broad generational perspective than, than my answer. But yeah, I appreciate that answer. Good call against cultural Marxism. It's drama, these class warfare talks. But uh, yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll talk to you next time.